Chapter 17, Part 2 of 2 of The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Yallily. The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 17, Part 2. St. Clair, who had been lying in the grass behind a tent, appeared and greeted Harry joyfully. But while Langdon was just the same, he had changed in appearance. He was thinner and graver, and his intellectual face bore the stamp of rapid maturity. "'It's like greeting one of our very own, Harry,' he said. "'You were with us in Charleston at the great beginning. We were afraid you would have to stay in the West.' "'Big things will begin here,' said Harry. "'There can be no doubt of it.' Do you know, Harry, that we are less than thirty miles from Washington? If there were any hill high enough around here, we could see the white dome of the Capitol, which we hope to take before the summer is over. But we'll take you to the Colonel and Major Hector St. Hilaire, that was, but Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire, that is. Colonel Talbot was sitting at a small table in a tent, the sides of which had been raised all around, leaving only a canvas roof. Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire sat opposite him across the table, and they were studying intently a small map of the region that was soon to be sown deep with history. They looked up when Harry came with his two friends and gave him the welcome that he knew he would always receive from them. "'I've a letter from your father,' said Colonel Leonidas Talbot, "'and I've been expecting you. You are to be a lieutenant on my staff.' and the quartermaster will sell you a new uniform, as glossy and fine as those of which St. Clair and Langdon are so proud. He asked him a few more questions about Kentucky and his journey over the mountains, and then telling St. Clair and Langdon to take care of him, he and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire went back to the study of their map. Harry noticed that both were tanned deeply, and that their faces were very serious. "'Come along, Harry,' said Langdon. "'Let the colonel and the major bear all the troubles. "'For us, everything is for the best. "'We've got you on our hands, and we're going to treat you right. "'See that deep pool in the brook, where the big oak throws its shade over the water? "'It's partly natural, and it's partly dammed, but it's our swimming hole. "'You are covered with dust and dirt. "'Pull off your clothes and jump in there. "'We'll protect you from ribald attention.' There are other swimming holes along here, but this swimming hole belongs to the Invincibles, and we always make good our rights. Harry was more than willing. In three minutes he jumped into the deep, cool water, swimming, diving, and shaking himself like a big dog. He had enjoyed no such luxury in many days, and he felt as if he were being recreated. Langdon and St. Clair sat on the bank and gave him instructions. "'Now jump out,' Langdon said at the end of five minutes." "'You needn't think, because you've just come, and you are in a way a guest, "'that you can keep the swimming hole all to yourself. "'A lot more of the Invincibles need bathing, and here come some for their chance.' "'Harry came out reluctantly, and in a few minutes they were on the way to the quartermaster, "'where the needed uniform, one that appealed gloriously to his eye, was bought. "'St. Clair was quiet, but Langdon talked enough for all three. "'The Yankee vanguard is only a few miles away,' he said. "'You don't have to go far before you see their tents.' though I ought to say that each side has another army westward in the mountains. There's been a lot of fighting already, though not much of it here. The first shots on Virginia soil were fired on our front the day General Beauregard arrived to take command of our forces. "'How about those troops in the hills?' asked Harry. "'They've been up and doing. A young Yankee general named McClellan has shown a lot of activity. 
he has beat us in some skirmishes, and he has organized troops as far west as the Ohio. Then he and his generals met our general, Garnett, at Rich Mountain. It was the biggest affair of the war so far, and Garnett was killed. Then a curious fellow of ours named Jackson and Stuart, a cavalry officer, lost a little battle at a place called Falling Waters. Has luck been against us all along the line? Not at all. A cockeyed Massachusetts politician, one Ben Butler, a fellow of energy, though, broke into the Yorktown country, but Magruder thrashed him at Big Bethel. All those things, though, Harry, are just whiffs of rain before the big storm. We're threatening Washington here with our main army, and here is where they will have to meet us. Lincoln has put General Scott, a Virginian, too, in command of the northern armies, but as he's so old, somebody else will be the real commander. Harry felt himself a genuine soldier in his new uniform, and he soon learned his new duties, which, for the present, would not be many. The two armies, although practically face to face, refused to move. On either side, the officers of the old regular forces were seeking to beat the raw recruits into shape, and the rival commanders also waited, each for the other, to make the first movement. Harry and St. Clair were sent that night far toward the front, with a small detachment, to patrol some hill country. They marched in the moonlight, keeping among the trees, and listening for any sounds that might be hostile. "'It's not likely, though, that we'll be molested,' said St. Clair. The men on both sides don't yet realize fully that they are here to shoot at one another. This is our place, along a little brook, another tributary of the Manassas. They stopped in a grove and disposed the men, twenty in number, along a line of several hundred yards, with instructions not to fire unless they knew positively what they were shooting at. Harry and St. Clair remained near the middle of the line, at the edge of the brook, where they sat down on the bank. The country was open in front of them, and Harry saw a distant light. "'What's that?' he asked. "'The campfire of a Yankee outpost. I told you they were very near.' "'And that, I suppose, is one of their bugles.' A faint but musical note was brought to them by the light wind blowing in their faces. "'That's what it is. It may be the signal of some movement, but they can't attempt anything serious without showing themselves. Our sentinels are posted along here for miles.' The sound of the bugle continued faint and far away. It had a certain weird effect in the night and the loneliness. Harry wished to know who they were at that far campfire. His own cousin, Dick Mason, might be there. Although we're arrayed for war, said St. Clair, the sentinels are often friendly. They even exchange plugs of tobacco and news. The officers have not been able to stop it wholly. Our sentinels tell theirs that we will be in Washington in a month, and theirs tell ours that they've already engaged rooms in the Richmond hotels for July. When two prophets disagree, both can't be right, said Harry. How far away would you say that light is, Arthur? About a mile and a half. Let's scout a little in that direction. There are no commands against it. Enterprise is encouraged. Just what I'd like, said Harry, who was eager for action. Leaving their own men under the command of a reliable sergeant named Carrick, the two youths crossed the brook and advanced over a fairly level stretch of country toward the fire. Small clusters of trees were scattered here and there, and beyond them was a field of young corn. The two paused in one of the little groves, about a hundred yards from their own outposts, and looked back. They saw only the dark lines of the trees, and behind them wavering lights, which they knew were the campfires of their own army but the lights at the distance were very small, mere pinpoints. "'They look more like lanterns carried by coons and possum hunters than the campfires of an army,' said Harry. "'Yes, 
"'You'd hardly think they mark the presence of twenty or thirty thousand men,' said St. Clair. "'Here we are at the cornfield. The plants are not high, but they throw enough shadow to hide us.' They climbed a rail fence and advanced down the corn rows. The moon was good, and there was a plentiful supply of stars, enabling them to see some distance. To their right, on a hill, was a white colonial house, with all its windows dark. "'That house would be in a bad place if a battle comes off here, as seems likely,' said St. Clair. "'And those who own it are wise in having gone away,' said Harry. "'I'm not so sure that they've gone. People hate to give up their homes even in the face of death. Around here they generally stay and put out the lights at dark.' "'Well, here we are at the end of the cornfield, "'and the light is not more than four or five hundred yards away. "'I think I can see the shadows of human figures against the flames. "'Come, let's climb the fence and go down through this skirt of bushes.' "'The suggestion appealed to the daring and curiosity of both, "'and in a few minutes they were within two hundred yards of the northern camp. "'But they lay very close in the undergrowth. "'They saw a big fire, and Harry judged that four or five hundred men were scattered about.' Many were asleep on the grass, but others sat up talking. The appearance of all was so extraordinary that Harry gazed in astonishment. It was not the faces or forms of the men, but their dress that was so peculiar. They were arrayed in huge blouses and vast baggy trousers of a blazing red, fastened at the knee and revealing stockings of a brilliant hue below. Little tasseled caps were perched on the sides of their heads. Harry, remembering his geography and the descriptions of nations, would have taken them for a gathering of Turkish women, if their masculine faces had been hidden. "'What under the moon are those?' he whispered. "'They do look curious,' replied St. Clair. "'They call themselves Zouaves, and I think they're from New York. It's a copy of a French military costume which, unless I'm mistaken, France uses in Algeria. They'd certainly make a magnificent target on the battlefield.' A Kentucky or Tennessee rifleman who'd miss such a target would die of shame. Maybe. But listen, they're singing. What do you think of that for a military tune? Harry heard for the first time in his life an extraordinary choppy air, a rapid beat that rose and fell abruptly, sending a powerful thrill through his heart as he lay there in the bushes. The words were nothing, almost without meaning, but the tune itself was full of compelling power. It set the marching feet toward triumphant battle. In Dixie's land I'll take my stand, cinnamon seeds and sandy bottom. Look away, look away, down south in Dixie. Three or four hundred voices took up the famous battle song, as thrilling and martial as the Marseillaise, then fresh and unhackneyed, and they sang it with enthusiasm and fire, officers joining with the men. It was a singular fact that Harry should first hear northern troops singing the song which was destined to become the great battle tune of the south. What is it? whispered Harry. It's called Dixie. They say it was written by a man in New York for a Negro minstrel show. I suppose they sing it in anticipation, meaning that they will soon be in the heart of Dixie, which is the South, our South. I don't think those baggy red legs will ever march far into our South, whispered Harry defiantly. It is to be seen. Between you and me, Harry, I am convinced there is no triumphant progress ahead for either North or South. Ah, another force is coming, and it's cavalry. "'Don't you hear the hoofbeats, Harry?' Harry heard them distinctly, and he and his comrade lay more closely than ever in the bushes, because the horsemen, a numerous body, as the heavy tread indicated, were passing very near. The two lads presently saw them riding four abreast toward the campfire, and Harry surmised that they had been scouting in strong force toward the southern front. 
They were large men, deep with tan and riding easily. Harry judged their number at two hundred, and the tail of the company would pass alarmingly near the bushes in which his comrade and he lay. "'Don't you think we'd better creep back?' he whispered to St. Clair. "'Some of them taking a shortcut may ride right upon us.' "'Yes, it's time to make ourselves scarce.' They turned back, and going as rapidly as they dared, but that which Harry had feared came to pass. The rear files of the horsemen, evidently intending to go to the other side of the camp, rode through the low bushes. Four of them passed so near the boys that they caught in the moonlight a glimpse of the two stooping figures. "'Who is there? Halt!' sharply cried one of them, an officer. But St. Clair cried also, "'Run, Harry, run for your life, and keep to the bushes!' The two dashed at utmost speed down the strip of bushes, and they heard the thunder of horses' hoofs in the open on either flank. A half-dozen shots were fired, and the bullets cut leaves and twigs about them. They heard the northern men shouting, "'Spies! Spies! After them! Seize them!' Harry, in the moment of extreme danger, retained his presence of mind. "'To the cornfields, Arthur!' he cried to his comrade. "'The fence is staked and ridered, and the horses can't jump it. If they stop to pull it down—' They will give us time to get away. Good plan, returned St. Clair. But we'd better bend as we run. Those bullets make my flesh creep. A fresh volley was sent into the bushes, but owing to the wise precautions of bending low, the bullets went over their heads, although Harry felt his hair rising up to meet them. In two or three minutes they were at the fence, and they went over it almost like birds. Harry heard two bullets hit the rails as they leaped. They were in view then for a moment, but they merely increased his speed, and he and St. Clair darted side by side through the corn, bending low again. They heard the horsemen talking and swearing at the barrier, and then they heard the beat of hoofs again. "'They'll divide and send a force around the field each way,' said St. Clair. "'And some of them will dismount and pursue us through it on foot.' "'We can distance anybody on foot. Harry, when I heard those bullets whistling about me, I felt as if I could outrun a horse or a giraffe or an antelope or anything on earth. And thunder, Harry, I feel the same way now. Bullets fired from the fence made the plowed land fly not far from them, and they lengthened their stride. Harry afterwards said that he did not remember stepping on that cornfield more than twice. Fortunately for them, the field, while not very wide, extended far to the right and left and the pursuing horsemen were compelled to make a great circuit. Before the thudding hooves came near, they were over the fence again, and still, with wonderful powers of flight, were scuttling across the country toward their own lines. They came to one of the clusters of trees, and dashed into it, lay close, their hearts pounding. Looking back, they dimly saw the horsemen, riding at random, evidently at a loss. "'That was certainly close,' gasped St. Clair. "'I'm not going on any more scouts unless I'm ordered to do so.' "'Nor I,' said Harry. "'I've got enough for one night at least. "'I suppose I'll never forget those men with the red bags in place of breeches, "'and that tune, Dixie. "'As soon as I get my breath back, I'm going to make a bee-line for our own army.' "'And when you make your bee-line, another just as fast and straight will run beside it.' "'They rested five minutes, and then fled for the brook and their own little detachment behind it.'" End of 17, Part 2 of 2